The next hour will inform you on how cybersecurity is one of the most significant threats to our national security, as well as the battle that cybersecurity experts are undergoing every day on your behalf to protect you, your families, and your data. Welcome to Task Force 7 Radio with your host, the president and CEO of Task Force 7 Radio and Task Force 7 Technologies, George Reedus. Hello, everyone, and welcome to episode number 46 of Task Force 7 Radio, the voice of cybersecurity. I'm your host, George Reedus. I want to emphasize that all opinions expressed on the show are my own and not that of my president past employers. I will never disclose any sensitive intelligence that I've been privileged to as a result of my current employment, and I will never knowingly disclose any classified information related to any security clearances I presently hold or have held in the past with the United States government, and nothing I say during this show should be construed as legal or financial advice. So before we get started, I want to remind our listeners that you can go online to the Cybersecurity Hub and read a recap of tonight's show and get other up-to-date cybersecurity breaking news at their very cool website, www.cshub.com. The Cybersecurity Hub is an online news source for global cybersecurity professionals and business leaders who leverage technology and services to secure their networks. The media professionals at the Cybersecurity Hub are dedicated to providing the latest industry news, thought leadership, and analysis in the cybersecurity space. So again, to check out a recap of tonight's show and get other up-to-date cybersecurity breaking news, go to the Cybersecurity Hub at cshub.com. That's the Cybersecurity Hub at cshub.com. So, wow, last week, Shelly Westman was great. I mean, what a great episode. What a great speaker she is. You know, the, the topic of attracting and retaining more women into the cybersecurity industry always attracts a huge crowd. It attracts a huge crowd every, every time we talk about it on Task Force 7 Radio. And that's because it's such an important topic. And it's proving to be a very, very hard problem to solve. And as an industry, we're not making a lot of headway with this problem. I mean, it, it helps. It definitely helps to having experts like Shelley Westman and, and Magda Shelley and, and Rebecca Wynn on the show who really have enlightened us. And, and, and I, have been, I know I've learned a lot on some really new innovative ways that we should attack this problem and how we should really be thinking about it, right? So I'll just give you, for instance, you know, we talked a lot about goals and hiring a percentage of a number of women into your organization last week. And that having these goals, although I think sometimes they might not always be obtainable, but having them is a good thing, okay? So, and I say not, not always obtainable because consider this. If the college recruiting classes that you are recruiting out of, and then that's the courses, the degrees that teach the skill sets that you're looking for to be successful and accomplish your mission. These are the candidates that you need to have the right skill sets that, so that you can be successful in your organization. If they only consist of like 10 to 20% women, and in some cases, I think, you know, when I say 20 to 20, 10 to 20%, that might even be generous in, in some cases, right? And it depends on what domain of cybersecurity or technology you're looking at. And all the companies out there are making these sort of grandiose statements and setting these goals on how they're going to hire 50% women into the organizations. Well, obviously, this is statistically impossible. It's just statistically impossible, right? So what do we do about it? And look, it's not that companies aren't trying, okay? It's just statistically impossible without recruiting people who are completely unqualified for the positions you're trying to fill. And that's not the goal that anybody's trying to reach, right? So we need to go deeper. We need to go deeper. We need to go past college. And I think even past high school uh, from what these women are saying on Task Force 7 Radio, and these are experts in the cybersecurity space. They've, you know, walked the walk. They know what it's like to try to climb the ladder in technology and cybersecurity space and be executives in, in a very competitive environment. Uh, and I think we should, and he definitely, everything that they say, take them very seriously. I mean, we need to get, go past the high school. We need to get parents and educators involved to help solve this problem. And we as information security professionals are responsible for educating them on the problem on how to help children understand the great opportunities available to them 
in the cybersecurity and the greater technology space. So I'm a big believer in that. I'm going to keep supporting this mission as, as much as I possibly can. We're going to keep pounding away on it on Task Force 7 Radio. So if you missed last week's show, I urge you to listen into it. It was really good. I mean, Westman is very well spoken. It was a great show. Getting a lot of great feedback on it. Um, you can listen to it anytime on playback, whenever it's convenient for you. And, you know, when you're getting ready in the morning on your way to work or on your commute or whatever, whatever works for you. That's the beauty of internet radio. So cybersecurity expert Shelly Westman on last week's episode. That's episode number 45 of Task Force 7 Radio. Well, if you're listening to us live on Voice America right now, or maybe someone just sent you the link to this episode, you might be wondering how you can listen to all the previous Task Force 7 Radio episodes on playback. Well, I know you're probably going to be shocked once again this week, but I'm going to tell you. I'm going to tell you. This is still the most frequent question I get. So you can find Task Force 7 Radio on a total of nine different playback mediums, including iTunes.com, Google Play, TuneIn.com, Stitcher.com, Player.fm, Overcast.fm, ListenNotes.com, the show's very own website at Task47Radio.com, and of course, the number one internet radio producer in the world at voiceamerica.com. So all in all, nine different options to get your TF7 radio fix. Wherever are folks, you can't miss us. If you Google Task Force 7 Radio, you get all your options. Just check us out. TF7 Radio Playback at your convenience, 24-7, 365, anytime, anywhere around the globe. And as always, please don't forget to subscribe. We love it when you subscribe. Thanks so much. So, I'm really excited because tonight we have yet another amazing guest appearing on the show on Task Force 7 Radio. So, the Chief Product Officer and Interim CTO of Onfido is here with us to talk about the cybersecurity risk and threats we face with identity verification on the internet. And this is all the talk lately. This is a big, big uh, topic of conversation among cybersecurity professionals uh, on a routine basis. Kevin is the Chief Product Officer and Interim CTO for Onfido. And Onfido is a leading identity verification provider that uses machine learning technology systems to validate government-issued identity documents and biometrics for digital businesses. Yes, that does sound very cool. So Kevin has worked in early stage companies for over 15 years in the fields of internet security, privacy, and trust, including VeriSign and Assert ID, a company that he actually founded. So Kevin serves on the board of directors for Aviata and previously Assert ID, and Kevin holds an MS in management from Stanford Graduate School of Business, where he's a Sloan Fellow, by the way, and he has a BS in chemical engineering from the University of Illinois, and like all the guests here on Task Force 7 Radio, well, he's just wicked smart. So, Kevin, welcome to the show. Thanks for coming on. George, thank you, and glad to be here with you and your audience. Hey, so I just kind of want to level set here a little bit about the identity verification. Can you just walk us through the history of identity verification and kind of benchmark this for our audience before we get into a deep dive? You bet. So I think this is a space that we're all intimately familiar with. And I think, it, you know, you think about the earliest identity verification that happens and where our identity gets created. It's when we're born, we're in a hospital, we get a social security number here in the U.S., we start to build up from that and move through the process of taking different services in life. We go into a school, we want to drive, we have to go to our DMV to get a driver's license, on and on and on through the different aspects of paying taxes and, and the different interactions with the government. So I think we're very familiar with how that happens in the real world. And I think your question is really posed at the digital world. And as that all started to evolve in the 90s, that same concept became very true. And, you know, the, the cliche of the dog online is we're all the, the mental model we have in our minds. So how do we take that trust system that we are all very familiar with and grew up with our lives and then bring that over to a digital environment? And there were a number of ways that this had started. And, and actually, my first swing at this market happened um, back in the late 90s. And there were a couple things going on there that really started this. And I think the first was being able to take that identity that we had and make it into some form of uh, digital credential that we can use. And then sometimes that digital credential was stored in a smart card that we would provide into a reader that would give us access to a building. So that was one of the first jumping off points of taking those physical components, our biometrics, and being able to encode those in a digital manner. The other aspect was really around an, a concept called PKI or public key infrastructure that I'm sure many of your listeners are familiar with. 
But this was a pretty, a pretty heavy system that was a digital credential that was used for exchanging a digital signature, exchanging uh, attributes about my identity, and then, of course, trying to encrypt and secure that information online. So PKI was a very big driver of trying to take some of those identity credentials and embed them in a machine-readable format. And a lot of the challenge back then was that, that was a pretty heavy system. It was very technically complicated. It was often tried first by banks, governments, and some of the extreme high assurance, high risk um, applications of, of what identity was necessary for to provide access. And it sort of stalled at that point because these systems were so complex and there were all sorts of user issues and the browsers had to be involved and all that kind of thing. So it sort of moved back then to saying, you know, the concept of user experience is very important in an identity verification process. And so I think we're all very familiar with the what are called knowledge-based authentication questions. So this was sort of the second phase of, of the identity verification market development, where it was like, forget all that stuff. Let's just ask a bunch of questions that were considered out of wallet, things that only you would know. And let's query a database, like a credit bureau, ask these questions with multiple choice answers, and the, the user allegedly would only know the proper answer. So I think the next phase was really leveraging databases in a way that could have this sort of process that was pretty easy on the user and still provided a reasonable amount of trust. And I think that, as we all well know now, has certain limitations because that's based on a trusted source or a source of data that has integrity. And you can come back down to the social security number uh, compromises that have happened here in the US, obviously, just the general information that's within a credit bureau. It's kind of led to the, the, kind of the evolution of limitation of that approach. And so I think that as we looked at maybe the 2000s, that was kind of the, the, the standard method that had been used there. And I think all along the way that there was still efforts that were trying to be made to build better systems that either involved the government. Um, there were things like the NSTIC program or the electronic authentication partnership that the government was trying to work in a public-private sector partnership. A number of those initiatives that just kind of came and went. And there was a lot of uh, kind of looking back retrospective on the willingness and the ability for the government to participate, the lack of willingness for this country here in the U.S. to make a national ID, and just some of these technology issues that I talked about earlier that limited some of those programs. So here we are, 2000, you know, 2015, 2020 era, and we're back at it again. And I think the need for these types of systems is, is even more so. And we can go through you know, a recap of some of the issues that have happened over the last even just year to scope the problem, but new methods are needed because the, the problem is still there. The job to be done of getting people into an online service is still there. What's even more so happening is the need for purely digital businesses. The concept of going to a bank to open a bank account, like no one wants to do that, right? There are banks that are solely digital now and are challenging all the existing banks that have you know, the, the in-person retail uh, branches. There's also new business models out there that don't have an office, right? You have a, a company like an Uber that's a global business and is trying to onboard trusted drivers into their system. There's no one place where they can all go and present a driver's license. And then there's other new business models that are you know, more in the shared economy concept where I want to rent my house or I want to you know, offer a ride in my car. I want someone to walk my dog, whatever it may be. And how do you have that trust in those platforms without having some assurance on the identity verification, the identity of that person. And that's where the identity verification is sort of coming back up even more so and now requiring different ways to consider how to do this from an implementation perspective. So that's sort of what I would walk us through to the present tense of thinking about where we've come and where we've gone. There's a lot of lessons learned for us to look at. There's always a grandiose vision of where we can be. And I think we're sort of in that, that realistic point of just trying to figure out how to build the best system that addresses the end user, but still brings trust into the system to prevent you know, improper impersonation and account access and all the different things that we can talk about here in a few minutes about the problems we have today with the market. Yeah, so let's get into that a little bit about the improper use of, of these identity verification systems. So, you know, considering the more innovative uh, solutions that have come out now, and, and you know, Onfito is a great example of that, what are some of the problems that exist today around the secure identity verification? Sure. Well, I think the, the issues we have go back to that the vulnerability of a digital system is a pretty low vector of attack for a fraudster. 
they can attack it from anywhere around the world. They can attack it with multiple approaches, multiple people, very powerful systems. There is now data available for purchase that makes this problem really difficult to solve. So think of it as like an arms race. There is constant vulnerability on the human side from a social engineering perspective. So the threat is still there and getting harder to deal with. And the more you try to jeopardize or sort of reduce down the level of security, of course, the less you're going to be able to prevent from a fraud perspective. So examples of the size of this problem are, are unbelievable in terms of what's happening. And these are some great um, you know, numbers to just to think about the problem set where just within the last year, I mean, we'll talk about Equifax sort of by itself because it's its own category of problem. But in the U.S. here, 150 million users were compromised in the Equifax breach, which basically affects everybody <laughs> in right. terms of adult. There's other things that have happened around Anthem and their healthcare um, insurance program, um, systems that were also compromised. So now you start looking from address information, credit information to healthcare information. And these, the source of the data that's available for a fraudster to obtain is very readily available. And I hate to call companies out by name, but just to, to, to paint the picture of the scope of the problem. So last year alone, we had roughly uh, almost 20 million victims of identity fraud. That came in at roughly almost $20 billion in stolen uh, assets. Um, the problem is growing year to year in, by 50%. And you know, when you start to think back of like how these things are happening, I mean, a lot of it comes down to this identity theft, somehow making, posing as an identity, getting into someone's system and then causing more havoc or just buying their identity and posing and using that in a way to get into a system um, under the, the guise of being somebody else. Um, online is, a, is an extra special problem because then you start thinking about the attack vector of what an online service offers and there's definitely just buying services or getting access to, to you know, bank information and, and then of course the assets there. Um, a lot of that, almost a third, comes down to these identity services that are being used to provide the accounts in the first place as the point of attack, as the vector of attack. So you start to frame this up, and this is, this is a problem that's getting big and sizable, affecting almost everybody, and is growing. It's, 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 it's a very difficult problem. Yeah, I think it does affect everybody, and it, it begs the question, what types of businesses desperately need new, innovative identity verification solutions? Yeah, you know, I, and I think I touched on it just a little bit earlier, but let's just break the problem into two halves where I think you've got what I will call the regulated businesses and, and a lot of the regulated businesses come in financial institutions. And, you know, obviously, um, as long ago as the 60s with the Bank Secrecy Act and, you know, the Patriot Act that happened after 9-11, um, there's been more and more requirement on financial institutions to what's called KYC, know their customer, know your customer. And what that means is that you just can't sign somebody up without having a knowledge of who they are and potentially doing some screening on them to see if they potentially are involved with, you know, foreign interests or um, in particular money laundering. So a lot of what the um, money launderers want to do is create accounts and be able to, to move money into different places that has been gathered, you know, initially in, a, in, a, in an illegal manner. So this is a very big thing um, for those types of businesses in fact, I think there was a stat out there that there's something like $200 million in spend happening just to be compliant with money laundering laws if you're an online financial institution. So that's sort of the, the first bucket there. And as I mentioned earlier, a lot of those same companies are trying to reinvent themselves and take their businesses to a purely mobile approach or to a fully digital approach. So there's also this user experience consideration here that says they don't want to have someone go and drive to a branch and sit in a lobby and wait for a few minutes and go through the whole process of, of, of activating an account in that manner. They just want to be able to create it right away. And we'll get into a little bit later about how you can do that in sort of a tiered manner, perhaps, to also adjust the processes with the risk that's going to happen at a given life cycle of an account. On the other side, um, you've got the non-regulated segments, and this is a little bit what I was talking about in terms of purely digital businesses the newer business models that have, that have spun up in the last five or 10 years that are really like disrupting existing industries. Um, but in those kind of processes, they either have two needs, right? One is that there's no office or branch for, for people to come into. Or second, the entire system is predicated on trust. And if you have some bad apples that enter the platform, over time, the trust will degrade. And I, and I would just add as a third sort of smaller point that I think is the kind of the, in the emerging space going forward is what I will call identity as a, as a benefit. 
the more that you can understand a certain user on your platform, it might translate into additional benefits for that user because of the fraud or whatever the, the misuse is being reduced. But as a result for the user, they actually can gain certain benefits. And you see some of this starting to happen where you, you look at like the, um, the concert ticket industry as an example, where we know there's lots of scalpers and fraud and they're coming up with concepts that I will, um, that I've seen that are like verified fans, where if you present yourself and get verified, you'll get benefits from the artist that gives you VIP tickets or additional collateral or whatever it may be. That, that is sort of the trade-off for you convincing um, the ticket industry that you're not a fraudster. So those are sort of the three areas in the non-regulated that we see the most. And, and they're really driving a need for something that is a purely digital approach that's relatively balanced. And this is, I think, kind of the next point we like to talk about is the, the trade-off between the user experience and, and the fraud prevention in this type of activity here. Yeah, I definitely want to do that. We also talk about, you know, this, this, uh, so, you know, cybersecurity solutions being uh, business enabled, right? And you mentioned that and I want to, I don't want to forget that point. I want to touch on it a little bit later, but I do want to mention and, and get a little bit deeper into the fact of the user experience and how that, uh, and how that goes, because whenever we talk about cybersecurity and the controls that we implement in cybersecurity, it is about the user experience. We want professionals to think like, a business. We want them to talk the language of the business. We want them to think like the business. And, you know, if we tip every security control we wanted, we could shut down fraud across the board, but we would lose all our customers too, right? Exactly. So how do we look at identity verification in this instance versus getting users into or just using these services? What's the, what's the friction look like there? Yeah, it's a, it's a, it's a great question and one that we think about as a company, and again, being in the security industry for a long time, just it, just the classic way you describe it is, is the, the functional point. The first thing is that I think in looking at any of these processes, there, when we interact with our customers, there's always two groups that we talk to. One is the security or fraud or compliance group, depending on the type of company you have. And then there's the other side, which is the product or the business side. And you know the, the folks that are thinking about conversion and getting people into their systems and using their systems. And you put both of them in the room, and I think they generally agree on the same thing, that it's, you know, it's a business-first goal. That's the whole point of being there. And you need to consider every step, every additional requirement of the user is potentially a drop-off. And every other step of friction that requires more and more information about themselves, people start to get uncomfortable or whatever it may be. So with that in mind, you also need to consider that there are bad apples coming through the system that you need to find. Now, let's pick a number of less than 1% is just something to talk about. Um, how do you do that to optimize any process for the 99% goods and to find the, the, you know, the half to 1% that are trying to beat the system on any given point in time? And there's a number of things you need to think about here. Um, the first would be that really what is the business goal on what you're trying to do with the, the given step that we're incorporating security? Um, are you trying to get them into an account that maybe is just a, a, a provisional account that has very low risk and you want to get them to sign up, get their personal information, you know, lock and load, and then, you know, use a, a nurturing campaign to get them to use more of the services or whatever it may be. Oftentimes you hear about a provisional account, like for a financial institution that has certain rights, but you can't wire out a bunch of money, you know, this and that. So you start to think about the different levels of risk in the process and the business goals and try to adjust your security in such a way that it's measured and layered along with the different steps along the process. Second part is that on the flip side, sometimes these services are as good of a, as a deterrent as they are in their functional ability to detect fraud from a given user. So if you add more steps along the way and, you know, for example, ask the person to take a video of themselves or submit a document, perhaps a real fraudster may not want to do that. Right. And they might not be feeling comfortable about getting their picture into a system, you know, so that might be enough of a deterrent to catch a certain set of fraudsters. So in some cases, you need to think of it that way of just like these services are as good working on their the, the, the manner they're supposed to be designed to, to catch fraud, but they're also a deterrent. So the, the other point here is that um, there's a there's a way to think about the interaction model so that you're offering different options for the user. So for example, they come in for, from day zero and a digital onboarding process typically needs to have a user uh, make a decision to join a service within five to 10 seconds as an example, or 20 seconds or 30 seconds, pick your favorite number based on your process. So in that step, that's where you wanna maybe have them layer in their personal information and then have the identity verification 
show up maybe right after the account's been created as a, as an example. So, or when they turn on a feature within the account, so you've captured their personal information along the way. And, and this is where it gets into the, the part that we as a, as our company has embedded within our product is a, is a product design function where we actually think about working with our customers to design user experiences that work and how we can bring identity verification into the uniqueness of each business process. But with the caveat that, you know, 80% of these things are trying to do the same thing, get a user in quickly, get their personal information, user, password, email, and then have them use the system. And then you can layer in these different levels of authentication, levels of verification as that business process triggers the higher risk processes. So Kevin, we got to take a little time to go to commercial break, but we'll be right back to talk some more shop about identity verification in just a few minutes. So, Hey, if you're a social media junkie, don't forget to follow TF7 Radio on your favorite social media platform. Follow us on LinkedIn by searching at Task Force 7 Radio and on Facebook, Twitter, and even Instagram by searching at TF7 Radio. For any inquiries regarding sponsoring the show or suggestions for topics or guests, as well as other business communications, please email me directly at george.redis at taskforce7radio.com. That's george.redis at taskforce7, that's with the number 7, radio.com. I want to remind our audience that we're building the world's premier cybersecurity professional network, Task Force 7. I'm really excited about this, folks. Tune in over the next several months for more information on this much-needed and much-awaited-for network. We're going to solve some problems together, folks. I promise you, Task Force 7, get in the fight. We're going to pause for some quick messages from our sponsors, and then we'll be right back with our special guest, the Chief Product Officer and Interim CTO of Onfito, Kevin Trilly. Whatever you do, don't go away. You're listening to Task Force 7 Radio, the voice of cybersecurity. Become our friend on Facebook. Post your thoughts about our shows and network on our timeline. Visit Facebook.com forward slash Voice America. Improve the efficiency and effectiveness of your security operations with DF Lab Security Orchestration, Automation, and Response Technology. Automate threat containment, orchestrate incident response, and measure operational performance with DF Lab's Inkman SOAR platform. Leverage your current security resources to minimize incident resolution time, maximize analyst efficiency, increase the number of incidents handled, and reduce overall risk. Inkman SOAR acts as a force multiplier, enabling your security team to do more with less. Streamline the full incident response lifecycle automation process today. Keep your cyber incidents under control with DF Labs. Visit dflabs.com forward slash TF7 to request a look at Inkman SOAR live in action. Account takeover is the fastest growing form of cyber attack. Criminals exploit compromised accounts for financial gain, often causing irreparable and long-term damage to finances and reputation. Many companies think they're protected. They believe using a password manager, multi-factor authentication, behavior-based technology, password rotations, or solutions that scan the deep and dark web is enough. Yet the account takeover problem only continues to get worse. SpyCloud combines human intelligence and automated technology to prevent account takeover for your customers and employees. We recover stolen credentials early in the account takeover lifecycle before the credentials are sold on dark forums. Check your exposure for free at spycloud.com. Have you friended us on Facebook yet? Why not? Just go to Facebook.com forward slash Voice America or search for the keywords Voice America. Once you are part of our Facebook network, you'll receive daily messages about what's happening with our shows, this week's featured guests, and new happenings at the Voice America Talk Radio Network. And you can add your voice to the always active discussions on our timeline. Just go to Facebook.com forward slash Voice America or search for Voice America. You are listening to Task Force 7 Radio with George Redis. If you'd like to find out more about our program, please visit the website at taskforce7radio.com. Again, that's taskforce7 with the number 7, radio.com. Now, back to this week's show. Here again is your host, George Redis. Welcome back to Task Force 7 Radio, the voice of cybersecurity. I'm here with our special guest, the Chief Product Officer and Interim CTO of Onfido, Kevin Trilly. So, Kevin, so 
we, we level set a little bit in the first segment by talking about the cyber threat around identity verification and storing identity information. And I want to kick off this segment by talking about the approach to solving the problem, the, 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 the secure identity verification issue. So now, typically, identity verification is done in a lot of places. It's done in places like immigration lines and in banks. So you mentioned finance institutions before. I mean, airport security lines. I mean, even purchasing alcohol at local liquor stores, right? But, but doing this online sounds like a whole new ball game to me. So what are the challenges to verifying someone's identity over the internet? Yeah, George, yeah, I think it's a lot of the somewhat obvious, which is that in some cases, the, the person that is requesting something on a digital platform, access to a service or to do something, um, they're not there, right? They're, they're sitting behind the comfort of a screen and you can't reach out and touch them. There's no context. You can't see a person looking nervous, right, necessarily. Um, there's, you know, different, different sort of limitations, obviously, that are presented here. So the question becomes, you go back to the principles of what identity verification is trying to accomplish and you try to take those principles as much as you can and apply them to the constraints of a digital environment. And this is where it gets pretty challenging, obviously, because I'm not even saying in the real world this is a perfect process. Like there's, there's a well-known statistic of uh, some evaluation of passport officers in, in airports, and they're not 100% effective even doing it in person in the rather strict you know, immigration lines and uh, all the different systems that are in place and, and what have you that we see that I'm very familiar with in airports, they'll often miss, um, it was quoted as uh, they'll get six out of seven right on average. So you have a very difficult process that now you're constraining even further into a digital process. So what you have to think about there is then how do you represent some of those characteristics that are needed for identity verification within the, the digital context? And you know the first thing obviously is um, up until a few years ago, you know, a lot of what we would see in a user online, if we viewed them through a camera or whatever it may be, was pretty low res. And so I think one of the biggest challenges, and I think one of the trends that's opening up new approaches, is that you have uh, a, an advancement in technology that's now starting to be able to capture a real image of a person at a sufficient resolution. So that would be one example of, of you know, the challenges that we would have there. Um, additionally, there's the second part, which always comes back to you know, there's no global database in the world, right? We would love to have this digital online database of identities. And, and I say that wish sort of as, a, as an asterisk wish, but if that was available, the digital world would have something that could represent a lot of the systems that we are used to in a local geographical frame. So the other challenge is that the digital world and all of the customers that are running platforms, they're not just based in the US, they're not just based in Italy, they're not just based in Japan. They have global constituencies. And so any challenge you're trying to implement for an identity verification solution can't just be local. It's got to consider this global constituency, and that makes the problem really big in a hurry. So I think those are maybe a couple of flavors of the challenges that, that are different um, when you start to think about replicating a system or building a system that doesn't exist today and applying it to the digital environment. So we have all this innovative new technology with mobile phones and cameras and fingerprint technology. When you think about it, like what type of approaches really broach the realm of the possible here? Mm -hmm. and, and what types of factors enable these approaches to be successful in your mind? Yeah, sure. So there's a number of different identities that we have online and that potentially can be digitized and used online, right? So there are things that we're very familiar with, with our email address and our, you know, our accounts that we've used for many years. And, you know, there's some trust in in my personal emails because I've communicated with different people for many years so that there, you know, you think of that as one part of your identity. Um, social networks obviously create a social identity where again, over time and through network embeddedness and, you know, the ability to, to convince people or to cheat a network of people that are highly related is, is pretty difficult. Um, we think about our mobile phone numbers and again, something that we use a lot over time, you know, there's, there's a reasonable amount of trust in, in that type of uh, approach also. Um, but additionally, I think you start thinking of those as all sort of vulnerable in their own ways. And so the, the, the challenge you have there is really how would you leverage one of those in, in a high risk transaction? So back to the second part of your question, which is then, all right, great. What's different now that we can start to think about that might enable a new system to be 
applied in scale in a global manner. And I think, as I, as I alluded to earlier, I think the mobile device is really becoming this core piece of our human existence and our identity. We all you know, kind of just see how we can't even put them down walking down the street and going from one place to another. Um, we're, they're becoming so much more than a phone in that they're, you know, we're, we're with all the different um, authentication mechanisms that are in there, leveraging different types of fingerprints and face, all the credit card information that's stored in there where you can do touchless payments. The, the, the mobile phone is really becoming this intrinsic identity augmentation of who we are. But the most important part from this conversation is really the resolution of the camera, which has improved so much. It's now a very high resolution capture device. And when you start to think about that, that shifts the, the need from having very specialized equipment that you would see at a airport or whatever it may be um, into something that's already been bootstrapped out to the global internet, right? Everyone has a phone to some degree. The technology now, you know, outside of like emerging markets and emerging countries is getting to be fairly standard in terms of the quality of the phone that you can use that now as an image capture. And you start to see this in, you know, products like Evernote and Dropbox, where they're now doing, you know, document scanning directly, where before that was some device that we would have to put in our, you know, a printer or whatever it may be in our houses. So that I think is the number one factor in terms of the ability to capture, whether it be a government document and scan it, whether it be a biometric image of myself, like a picture of my face, whether it be the capturing my voice, whether it be capturing a full image of myself, a live video of myself, those now bring that digitization ability of my identity online. And I think the second part that's a little orthogonal to that, but is as equally important, is as I went back to the passport um, agent limitation, let's just make that a general human limitation, that this is a really hard thing to do in real life, in person with somebody. What you're starting to see now with the reemergence, sort of repopularization of machine learning and other forms of artificial intelligence is that ability to build models that can simulate what a human is doing with judgment. And I think that technology is starting to enable a, a potential solution to the problem I described, which is a very complex world with billions of people and all sorts of different cultures, all sorts of different methods of identification. And, and being able to build that in a solution that really scales to what businesses need, which is that single global solution. So I put those two families of technologies that really enable those new approaches to make to, to, to really happen. So you just mentioned a lot of different methods or, or approaches here. I mean, which one do you think is the most successful and the most secure too? And, and, and why do you think that's so? It's a great question. And at Onfido, we've obviously thought really, really hard about this in terms of the way we were constructing the company and the product set. And, and more generally, I'll talk about it because I think there is this desire or nirvana of having something that, as I was discussing with you in, in the first segment, extremely low friction, super convenient to a user, um, but yet super robust. And so when you think about any type of system, you've got to think of a number of factors. Um, one is the user experience, obviously. There's the classic cost, the, the operation of that system, the maintenance of the integrity of that system, et cetera. There is the existing integrity of that system, meaning how trustworthy is it? Um, and the fourth would be the applicability or ubiquity of the solution. Does it apply in just a specific regional area of the world? Does it apply to only a single culture? Or is it potentially or even immediately available in a global manner? So as you start to think of those parameters, you start to go across some of those uh, different methods that I was discussing. And then you start to add in other things that I didn't mention, which is like our good old fashioned government issued IDs, which we all carry in our wallet today, very ubiquitous. Um, you start to think about more biometric of a user. So, you know, the, the image of myself and um, that could be again, a static image or a live image. And then you add that to those other um, options around social identity, your mobile identity, your digital identity for email, et cetera. And as you think about all those, you start to compare what you think is available now and has reasonable amount of trust, reasonable amount of cost, and hopefully not too high, and you know, a reasonable amount of convenience for the user. And as we looked really hard at that, we, again, with an eye toward the future of something evolving that's more, you know, even more convenient, even cheaper to use, et cetera, which isn't there today, you know, to me, the, the, what we concluded is that in, for certain high-risk transactions especially, that this government identity document is the point of departure for any type of solution. 
But that government identity document can't be used by itself. It's got to bind to a person, right? I can go find a driver's license that someone lost at a, at a sporting event and then go use it online. So how do you compare that to the actual person that's supposed to be in there? So you need some form of biometric to be able to compare that government identity document to some real person. And the flip side is you just can't go with the biometric by itself because a biometric isn't an identity verification technology. It's more of an authentication or a comparison technology, meaning there's no biometric database of my fingerprint anywhere that we can just access. It has to be registered to some person. So you have to think about biometric as a complement to some other form of identity. And in our model that we think is the most important right now in terms of this optimization of those factors is having a government identity document and binding that to someone's real persona via a biometric comparison. So I think this is somewhat of an obvious question, but I think people are obviously moving to more innovative and secure solution sets and in the identity verification space. But in your opinion, why can't a database model with traditional identification pedigree be used anymore? Yeah, you know, I think databases are very convenient, obviously, because you're just asking for information from a user that most likely, in some cases, you've already asked as part of their account activation process. Um, or you're asking, what I mentioned earlier, those out-of-wallet questions that sort of come in after the fact that are, again, frictional and, you know, kind of awkward questioning, but... Again, you're just looking for a, a multiple choice answer and you're done. There's no having to go into your wallet to get something or that kind of thing. But as we all know, it just the, the, the integrity of those solutions with, with respect to identity verification is, is diminishing, right? As these different systems are being hacked, that information's out there. So the ability for them to prevent is what I will call devaluing their signal. They're not completely worthless by any means, but the ability for them to be a strong signal is diminishing rapidly. And I think that coupled with the fact that there is a lot of motion right now here in the U.S., especially through a great group called the Better Identity Coalition, which is trying to get the government to rethink about the use of social security number going forward, period, right? They don't, they're recommending get away from it, right? And maybe look at the driver's bureau, driver's license bureaus as sort of a, an alternative ability to provide that identifier. Um, because that, that social security number is just out there. It's, there's no integrity in it anymore. And there's some challenges even about companies that have tried, some great companies, and one, one case study, the Better, Better Identity Coalition um, quotes is around it, uh, trying to remove their ability to use the social security number. But there are certain laws by the government that still require it. And so there, there's <laughs> challenges like that that say, even if we wanted to get away from databases completely, you still look at that as potentially it has a role as a, as a weaker signal and in some cases, it's just too hard to get, a, get a, away from because of either laws or the critical mass in the industry that's all using it today, which is really hard to just stop one part of it. You have to stop the whole part of it. How, how long and, do you think it's going to take for all that to play out? Yeah, the pressure is on now. It's, it's a great question. I mean, it's just like, I, I think as you see these numbers we were talking about earlier about how fraud is growing. And if you keep like hitting the whack-a-mole with one solution, but the problem's right. not going diminishing, then you got to look at the holistic problem. And, and I think the pressure the data is building where something needs to happen, but it's as much a public sector involvement as it is a private sector solution. So, you know, everyone's talking about biometrics. That's the last real true identity indicator that we have mm -hmm. left and how we're going to yeah. protect it at all costs, right? Right, right? We don't want this to get compromised. You know, people's biometrics start getting compromised and then we're you know, potentially in big trouble. So how do biometrics fit into the equation here? Yeah, and it's fantastic point because of the old revocation problem, right? Like once it's stolen, you can't remove it, right? And so it's got to be the last most protected bastion of data that we have <laughs> and only used in an extremely careful manner. And then with all of the, you know, the data privacy things that are being driven by the GDPR, you know, that this, this data, you know, even as it's used more and more, um, just, you, you just got to be extremely careful with how it's retained and the, making it available to potential hacks, right? So as I mentioned earlier, it's never something that can be used by itself. Um, but think about the second step of identity verification is more authentication. It's, it's Kevin Trilly who created the account and now Kevin Trilly is coming back. Um, how do you prove that's me, that I'm the account holder? Not that you have to prove that it's me, Kevin Trilly, in the first place. And that's where biometrics fit great. Like, why don't we just do a quick picture of myself or a quick video of myself if we're worried, really worried about um, impersonation? 
and then compare that to what's already in the system. But what's already in the system needs to have a high degree of trust and assurance to it to make that even work, right? So, so think of biometrics more as an augmentation to some other proof of possession or as an authentication technique once you've verified the identity and given the account um, access to that user. But again, how that data is used has to be extremely careful. Um, there's just, you know, there, there's no going back once that source of data starts to get, you know, shared. Now, our pictures are out there all on the, you know, from various, you know, things and being public um, in either your personal or professional life. So you got to be really careful about that in general because there's ways to find some form of your image out there already. So different types of things that are less public might be important. And, you know, one of the things that we've looked at is around what we call liveness, which is sometimes just taking an image of a person isn't enough because they're, believe it or not, some unbelievable masking technologies that are out there where people can convert their face into a different person using, you know, the images of their real um, body underneath. Um, there's just ways to, you know, obviously advance Photoshopping and those kind of, you know, digital tampering methods that are out there. Um, so having a very robust image of the user in a video format gives you that three dimensionality, gives you motion, gives you human you know, movements, and also gives you the ability to look for some of these um, masking techniques. And so we offer that obviously as a higher involvement of the user. So it's less convenient, but for those really high risk scenarios, you may need that because again, it's an arms race, right? <laughs> the, the, the data just keeps getting out there more and more. The ability to create different images of people gets out there more and more. And, you know, you're starting to see other types of biometrics that are less publicly available where, you know, there's even things where people look at how you type on a keyboard. You know, obviously voice is something that, you know, is there. Um, but there's, there's a combination of biometrics that need to be used in, in some manner. It's not a singular approach when this is all said and done um, that can triangulate in whether that person is really a human, whether it's really me. So do you think there's going to come a time where biometrics aren't going to be useful anymore? I mean, because of, you know, some of these problems once yeah. the sources get exposed? The question is, what's after that? Yeah, right? There's really no, there's no further path. <laughs> can you do? So, so I look at it. Yeah, right. There's, there's no other really thing to do, at least in, in my, my little mind. But, you know, to me, it's more about how it's used and the protections that need to be built in for when they're used. Um, and then just, you know, they're, they're always going to have to be there in some way, shape or form because the biometric is the real identity of the person. So that's what you're trying to take is that biometric information and marry it to a digital representation or a digital claim of who I am. So, so it's got to be there. So let's talk about AI for a minute. What's the role of artificial intelligence and machine learning in the identity verification space? Yeah, and I think this is one of the more exciting areas of using technology to do things that are not possible today, right? So when you start to think about what we're doing, and I'll to some of the, the specific things that, that Onfito does, but you can apply these more generally to some other areas of identity verification, I'm sure. Um, we really look at the, the document and the face biometric side as the two principal applications of machine learning. The first step on when you accept a, a government-issued identity document is that there are several hundred countries around the world that all have, you know, there's, there's five or seven different types of identity documents that are potentially used. They all have different versions. You know, there's versions that are under 21, over 21, 2015, 2010. And all of these need to be understood such that when you accept them, the fundamental concept is, can you trust that document? Has it been modified, tampered? You know, is there any fraud on the document? So the way you do that is you have to understand whether it is a document in the first place, um, what kind of document it is. You need to read and understand the information on the document and then extract it, especially with OCR information. And then you need to be able to test the document for any tampering or any fraud techniques that might have been applied to that. So that becomes a pretty big problem set in that if you did that in the real world, like you do some of these, these customs agents and, and immigration agents, they need to have a very high degree of training. And they constantly need to be updated on new versions and what have you of these different documents. And they need to understand on the other side, how these documents can be tampered with. So if you think about all that, it's a huge matrix, right? Because there are some problems that, fraud problems that can be applied to all types of documents in sort of a generic way. But there are many types that attack specific vulnerabilities of specific documents. So where machine learning comes in is that it's got the ability to 
one final point is that what we're fundamentally trying to do here when we, when we evaluate a document for an identity verification is we're going to convert an image of that document through a capture, like a phone or something on the, on the mobile device, and then evaluate it and then make a decision whether it can be trusted or not. And then the final step, obviously, is then to take that and compare it to the biometric representation of myself, picture my face, and match that to the image on, on, the, um, on the ID document. So the machine learning problem starts to solve this problem in, in a couple ways. Can you do it in this global way without like massively training and keeping humans you know, up to speed and, and then, of course, scaling those humans? Humans also make mistakes. They get tired, right? They have bad days. <laughs> um, they're just not perfect, right? That's right, right. And then, you know, the, the other part of this is that, you know, you're, you're having to do things in a digital manner that potentially a human can't even see. So there are other techniques we call the most sophisticated techniques that might actually be better de uh, detected by a machine versus a human and vice versa in some cases, right? Because humans sometimes can see things that have context and things that machines can't see. So this is a classic machine learning application because you have data coming through the system you have expertise that you can supervise the system and teach it. And then you have a, you know, a model that then labels and teaches the machine learning models to improve and scale over time. And what this also brings in as a final point is you can do it faster than a human ultimately. So we look at this as sort of a, a difficult problem, even though that it, it sounds conceptually like the right fit, because you're trying to identify a very small subset of frauds and what's available online is a very large set of goods. So you need to build models that really understand the, the, the trusted source and then determine the anomalies as the term. And that's what the machine learning is doing, is taking that anomaly detection for how much does it deviate from what is expected and flagging that with a confidence score to say that this can be trusted or not. And it's a very difficult problem. So the, the second step of there is then you use trained expertise to then take this machine and tune it and evolve it as new uh, documents show up or as new fraud techniques show up. And so this interactive model between humans teaching a machine and the machine then deep learning and evolving is really the crux of the problem. And that's the document side. It's similar on the facial side in that you're trying to do a facial comparison or a detection that that person is a live human being. And this, this applies to different cultures of people. Um, and different behaviors and, and what have you that really requires something that's very um, complementary. And in this case, sometimes humans actually do certain aspects of that better than machine, but they can't scale. So you got to use this sort of codependent way of leveraging what a human can do best, but scaling it with efficiency, speed, and global coverage with the machine. So, so Kevin, we're talking about a lot of different technologies. We're talking about a lot of different approaches here. And when we talk about cybersecurity, a lot of times we talk about redundancy, increasing the security of any type of control. So what would be a good example here of a hybrid approach uh, that would increase the security of the identity verification process? Yeah, and I think kind of distilling that last um, thread there was that you need a system here that involves expertise of people that understand the identity verification process as it exists in the world today to be able to port that knowledge over conceptually into the machine learning system. So when we talk about a hybrid approach, it's really a supervised machine learning approach. You can't just encode something and then let it sit there forever by itself because again, the emerging threats, the new types of uh, you know, cultures, the new types of documents that might appear or the other signals that we'll be adding you know, down the stream in, 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 a, in a broader system, that all needs to be taught to the system and the way you teach a system is very interesting in that you will actually process it with a human, an expert, and go through the process to determine whether it's a human or not, evaluate the document, evaluate the face. And then the second step is then to program the output of that decision in a format that can be consumed by the machine learning. So the hybrid approach really looks at that. And then as I mentioned earlier, this term of confidence where sometimes you're gonna get to an evaluation by the machine that says, this is probably bad, but we're going to flag it because it's a little bit uncertain. So what do you do with that uncertainty? You then take that very small sample set and apply it to your experts who then further teach the system on the more and more difficult cases. So that's where you get that sort of evolution and building of the model. And then, then over time, 
years, um, you start to get to a self-taught system that can take that learning process and then encode that also. So you're talking about stages of evolution of a system that go from the old school, in-person human, to porting that to digital, to machine learning, to supervised machine learning, to uh, unsupervised machine learning. Okay, Kevin, we got to take another short break to hear from our sponsors, but don't go away, folks. We'll be right back with the Chief Product Officer of Onfido, Kevin Trilly, after these short messages. You're listening to Task Force 7 Radio, the voice of cybersecurity. Become our friend on Facebook. Post your thoughts about our shows and network on our timeline. Visit Facebook.com forward slash Voice America. Improve the efficiency and effectiveness of your security operations with DF Lab Security Orchestration, Automation, and Response Technology. Automate threat containment, orchestrate incident response, and measure operational performance with DF Lab's Inkman SOAR platform. Leverage your current security resources to minimize incident resolution time, maximize analyst efficiency, increase the number of incidents handled, and reduce overall risk. Inkman SOAR acts as a force multiplier, enabling your security team to do more with less. Streamline the full incident response lifecycle automation process today. Keep your cyber incidents under control with DF Labs. Visit dflabs.com forward slash TF7 to request a look at Inkman SOAR live in action. Account takeover is the fastest growing form of cyber attack. Criminals exploit compromised accounts for financial gain, often causing irreparable and long-term damage to finances and reputation. Many companies think they're protected. They believe using a password manager, multi-factor authentication, behavior-based technology, password rotations, or solutions that scan the deep and dark web is enough. Yet the account takeover problem only continues to get worse. SpyCloud combines human intelligence and automated technology to prevent account takeover for your customers and employees. We recover stolen credentials early in the account takeover lifecycle before the credentials are sold on dark forums. Check your exposure for free at spycloud.com. Have you friended us on Facebook yet? Why not? Just go to Facebook.com forward slash Voice America or search for the keywords Voice America. Once you are part of our Facebook network, you'll receive daily messages about what's happening with our shows, this week's featured guests, and new happenings at the Voice America Talk Radio Network. And you can add your voice to the always active discussions on our timeline. Just go to Facebook.com forward slash Voice America or search for Voice America. You're listening to Task Force 7 Radio with George Redis. If you'd like to find out more about our program, please visit the website at taskforce7radio.com. Again, that's taskforce7 with the number 7, radio.com. Now, back to this week's show. Here again is your host, George Redis. Welcome back to Task Force 7 Radio, the voice of cybersecurity. I'm back with our special guest, the Chief Product Officer and Interim CTO of Onfido, Kevin Trilly. So, Kevin, I want to pick up where we left off on the last segment, and we're talking about identity verification here. And I want to talk a little bit about blockchain. I want to talk about digital IDs. I want to talk about some other things. But let's start out, I guess let's start out with digital IDs. Why can't a digital ID be in my mobile wallet, like a credit card, like for instance? Yeah, no, that, that's the ultimate hope and play here is that when, when we go and, you know, it's like today what's happening, especially with the, the different types of payment systems is just absolute convenience of being able to pay without pulling out the physical identity, I'm sorry, the physical credit card out of our wallet and, and you know, inserting that in the, the device. We just now tap our phone, throw a biometric down on top of it, and we're on our way. And so the question is just really like, why do we have to keep our wallet of different types of identity documents and carry those around, whether it be a passport, or a driver's license, what have you. So I think, again, the vision has, as long as I've been in this space, um, the multiple times I have, um, has always been this vision, which is creating a digital instance of our different identity personas or different types of documents that we carry. Immediately bring into the question about, you know, there's a public sector requirement there to look at that, to do that. So I think I don't have it right off the tip of my tongue here, but there are some works being started at the uh, at the RFC level 
around um, the different internet standards groups where they're starting to look at a digital driver's license format. I think there's even a pilot or two that's going out there in the U.S. Um, but they're just at that level. And again, with 50 different states and, and all that, you've got obviously a, a problem there. So the, the goal is to do this, right? And the question is the how and the what. So which, which identity, identities will be in there? So there's two ways to think about it. The first is that you take that original document, somehow get it digitized, have all the different governmental entities within the United States, the different states, globally, different countries around the world that adhere to a common format standard so that information can be consumed in a machine-readable manner. So without that, you're going to have a problem. It'll just be kind of the same problem with the different technologies that we have um, today, but what you also start to get rid of is then hopefully some of those ways that, that that ID can be attacked and defrauded. So there are some even interim goals that you can gain by going to a somewhat imperfect system. So I think that's sort of like things that are holding it back. Um, there's a second family though that can be created as another way as thinking about the derived data that comes off of that government identity document. So for example, as I talked about our process, we Look at us, we look at a government identity document, we evaluate it for being authentic, we bind it to a person. So then the question is what happens at the end of that process, right? Today it's given back to the, the business that's requesting that service and the data is deleted and it's not stored anywhere with the user. It's, it's just kind of, it goes away. And so it brings up the second question, which is what about the next time that same user goes to a different business and has to go through the same requirement? They have to do the whole process again, right? So. So if we could at least start to capture the output of that first instance and store that in a digital credential, even before the governments start to agree on a standard and implement these new systems that's, you know, what, 10 years away, um, you start to have the ability to have that digital identity in there, assuming a common standard, that, that the output of that process is an is ability to be shared in the common standard. That would, that would be the, the best possible solution we have in the next couple of years. So, Kevin, we talk about blockchain a lot on this show. Um, how is the advent of blockchain helping here? I mean, is it helping? Yeah, you know, this it's we're, we're definitely monitoring it closely from an industry perspective. At the same point, there are already some things starting to happen that show the promise of it. Now, what blockchain gives you is that really the ability to have a system that no one fully owns, right? There's no central entity that's managing a database. So what blockchain and you know, the distributed ledgers and those things can help with is facilitating the storage of an identity and associated transaction history in a way that's not centralized. And that's a very interesting concept. So if you couple that with where we were starting to talk about in the first point here is that the consumer can actually store and manage their own identity on a device, which is completely secure. I own it. I control it. I decide when to share it and then have a mechanism underneath it by which that identity can be shared and, and, and monitored. Its use can be monitored in a way that's not centralized. You start to put the building blocks together for what this future system can look like. And I think there's a lot of great work going now with proof of concepts and sort of, you know, the, a lot of the crypto world right now is starting to, to really take identity seriously because of the, not, the know your customer requirements they have also. And they see this opportunity to extend it to their infrastructures, you have some, uh, some strong potential of a new system being built that's not owned by one particular company. And I think that's very attractive for all users and potentially brings a lot of solutions to a global distributed trust model that, that also can be used. Because if we think about the, the point that I, that I just mentioned is that why would a user have to go through the same process twice just because they're at some similar business that's different? So I start with one bank for my checking and I go to another bank for my investing and they have the same basic requirements for onboarding. Why can't you have that identity just be shared from the first step to the second business? And again, assuming a common standard and a way to accept that in a, in a common manner. Instead, you have to require that the user goes through it again. They're highly inconvenienced. It takes more time. And you know the, the data is just being thrown out there in another business in another way that's open to a breach. So all these concepts sort of tie together in terms of the design of an ideal system that hopefully can come to fruition over the next several years. So when we talk about this ideal system, is it going to make it more difficult for those trying to commit fraud, you think? Yeah, I mean, I think it starts to solve some of the problems. Now, 
you know, there's some water under the bridge problem today with our identity data, which no system's going to fix, right? Like if they've got information about my, myself and it's out there, until you change to a new system, there's, there's not too much you can do to solve that problem. But you can stop propagating the problem, especially for younger generations, um, newer types of identity data that might not be out there. Brought up the biometric point earlier. And yes, the, the more users control their own information, the less other folks do that might have, you know, a security breach or just some, some vulnerability they weren't aware of that even in the best security program, something could happen. So I think it becomes a lessening of the problem that I would say really starts to take shape in the next generations of users of the web and our kids and what have you, that becomes the right system for them going forward. So I, I do believe it will there, will go there. I do believe there are still some things that need to work through that are not just technology, they're also public policy that the, that's really held back some of these systems in the past before. But it feels like a different chapter. It feels like we've all grown up. The problem's getting immense. The pressure is on for something to happen. And I think this technology enables and opens up that near, near-term timing of the solution appearing. So is facial recognition technology and biometrics still a viable option here, despite the recent concerns that we just discussed tonight? I mean, I just want to wrap this conversation up by asking you what the long-term strategy here is for ID verification, in your opinion. Yeah, and I think it's, it, it, it combines a lot of the points that we covered today. And I think the, the points have to be that a system that is using data like what we're talking about, this really precious biometric data, ultimately needs to be controlled and managed by a user in a secure device, needs to be shareable such that they're not inconvenienced every time they use it. This will open up more services, right? Identity is a key to access, right? So the more you make your identity easier to share in a trusted manner, the more users will be able to access more services and convenience and businesses will flourish. So there is a long-term driver for that to happen. Um, But the data has to be protected, right? It can't be We've just proven that no matter how good you are, you're going to be vulnerable because this data is very valuable to fraudsters and they're going to find a way. And if it's not one company, it's another company. And it doesn't matter if it's company A or company B, it's my information that gets compromised. So we have to remove that centralization concept, that long-term retention of data and a blockchain type of system starts to help with that, that model a consumer managed system on a secure mobile device or other device starts to contribute to that, you know, good facial recognition and binding to a government ID that ultimately is digitized is a great solution to that problem. So all those start to build those concepts of that future identity system, but it's definitely a collaboration effort to get there between private sector across different segments and the public sector that houses a lot of our, you know, original issuance of biometric registration and government identity documents. So, Kevin, it was great to have you on the show. I know that you're a busy guy and you got a lot of important things going on. Appreciate you taking the time out to speak with us tonight. I hope you come back. Thanks, George. I appreciate it. I enjoy the chat and I hope your audience does too. Okay, folks, we've run out of time once again. But before we go, I want to remind our listeners to visit the Cybersecurity Hub to read a recap of tonight's show and get other up-to-date cybersecurity breaking news at www.cshub.com. That's the Cybersecurity Hub at cs.com hub.com. Thanks for tuning in. You're listening to Task Force 7 Radio, the voice of cybersecurity. Stay frosty out there. Thank you for tuning in this week to Task Force 7 Radio. To learn more about Task Force 7 Radio, please visit our website at taskforce7radio.com. Be sure to join your host, George Reedus, again next Monday at 8 p.m. Eastern Time, 5 p.m. Pacific Time on the Voice America Business Channel.